You're listening to the Sojourn Church New Albany Sermon Series, Wise, Life as Gift, Not Gain. In this series from Ecclesiastes, we'll learn to see life as fundamentally a gift to receive and enjoy, not a hill to climb or a gain to achieve. This path of wisdom teaches us to live in the uncertainty and tensions of life under the sun. And now, hear the word of the Lord from Ecclesiastes 9, 1 through 8. This too I carefully explored. Even though the actions of godly and wise people are in God's hands, no one knows whether God will show them favor. The same destiny ultimately awaits everyone, whether righteous or wicked, good or bad, ceremonially clean or unclean religious or irreligious. Good people receive the same treatment as sinners, and people who make promises to God are treated like people who don't. It seems so wrong that everyone under the sun suffers the same fate. Already twisted by evil, people choose their own mad course, for they have no hope. There is nothing ahead but death anyway. There is hope only for the living. As they say, It's better to be a live dog than a dead lion. The living at least know they will die, but the dead know nothing. They have no further reward, nor are they remembered. Whatever they did in their lifetime, loving, hating, envying, is all long gone. They no longer play a part in anything here on earth. So go ahead. Eat your food with your joy and drink your wine with your happy heart, for God approves of this. Wear fine clothes with a splash of cologne. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Good morning, Sojourn. Peace be with you. Uh, It's good to see you guys. Uh, My name is Jonah. I'm one of the pastors here at Sojourn. Uh, Our mission at Sojourn is to reach people with the gospel of Jesus Christ, uh, to build them up as his church and send them to follow him as we live in the world. And I'm thankful that you guys have come to be some some part of that, one way or the other. Uh, I want to tell you about an imaginary day in the life of an Indiana pastor. Uh, That's where, I don't know if you guys know this, but Indiana makes the best pastors. Amen. Anybody? Amen. So this is a made-up story, but it's not too far from the reality of things. In the morning, uh, our pastor goes to the visitation of a church member who's passed away. Standing next to the casket, uh, an elderly, now widowed husband says to his pastor, "Just gonna, I'm going to miss her so much. The pastor looks at this now widowed man and says, me too, John, me too. A slow trickle of tears turns into sobs, and this pastor holds this elderly man who could be his father, and they weep next to each other, or with each other next to a casket at 10 o'clock in the morning. Leaving the funeral home, the pastor heads to a hospital, but this time for good news. Another church member, a young couple, they're welcoming their first child, and it's a girl. He walks into the recovery room, and everyone is glowing and celebrating, Grandparents, this young couple, even the doctor, is smiling and laughing. The pastor gives hugs. 
He anoints the child with oil and prays that she would grow to be a strong woman who lives a life of consequence. He prays a blessing over her and thanks God for the miracle of this new life. From the hospital, the pastor heads back to his office to meet with a deacon and then a middle-aged couple. They've been married for 15 years, and between the travel for work, the kids' activities, years of unresolved hurt and poor communication, the couple comes and says that we feel done. They're talking about getting a divorce. Their tears combined with hopeful words and hurtful accusations. The meeting ends totally unresolved, but they've agreed that they will keep on meeting again. From there, the day ends with a birthday party for the pastor's friend. There's great music, there's great food, there's comfortable conversation that turns into laughter and a late night. Now, there's four vignettes of a normal day in the life of an Indiana pastor, and I'm curious which one of those looks most like a picture of faith and godliness to you? Which one of those looks holy? Which one of those moments or experiences look most like what you imagine a good Christian would be like? Which moments look the most like faith to you? A funeral or a birth? Tears or laughter? Tragedy or blessing? It's a strange chapter we have here, Ecclesiastes chapter 9. Verse 2 says something that we're all aware of, but it's very painful for us to say out loud. It says, good people receive the same treatment as sinners. People who make promises to God are treated like people who don't. Put it another way, bad things happen to really good people, and really good things happen to really bad people. There's a warning here from the preacher of Ecclesiastes that faith and godliness is not always obvious. It's not always what we might think it would be. And don't, isn't there a part of you, despite the heartbreaking nature of these words, don't you kind of love the honesty that, that he just can say it like it is? He can say good things happen to bad people, bad things happen to good people. It's difficult. This is one of the oldest questions people have wrestled with. Why do good things happen to bad people and vice versa? But for me, at least, the honesty is quite refreshing. The verse after, I don't know how closely you were listening when Megan was reading for us. It's a verse that if, if I just read it to you, you might be surprised to know that it came from the Bible. Verse 3, it says, It seems so wrong that everyone under the sun suffers the same fate. The preacher doesn't just tell it like it is. He, he also is honest about what it feels like. It feels so wrong. Have you seen something in the last year and a half that you know is true, and yet you look at it and you say, this seems so wrong? What I'm about to say is going to seem foreign to many of us, especially if you grew up in the church. But we don't have to sugarcoat the pain in life. Good things happen to bad people. Bad things happen to good people, and it seems so wrong. Ecclesiastes, in some ways more than any other book in the Bible, tells it like it is. It uses the language of the people, the people on the street, the regular, everyday people. If Ecclesiastes, which is in the Bible, can tell it like it is, it means you and I can tell it like it is. I'm telling you, if you are not capable of this kind of honesty, this kind of plain talk, if everything you say 
has to be wrapped up in churchy-sounding language. Y'all know what I mean by churchy-sounding language? Christianese, everything is good. Today was the best day of my life, and it was better than yesterday, and thanks be to God, tomorrow's going to be even better. We, We wrap everything up in a bow. Psychologists would call it sublimation. People like me would call it lipsticking the pig. You know, you put, you just try to make everything bad look good, and we put a spin on it. If you become that kind of person, you will end up a fool. Right after the text finishes today, uh, the preacher, he ends this section of chapter 9 with a similar idea as to where he began. The fastest runner doesn't always win the race. The strongest warrior doesn't always win the battle. The wise sometimes go hungry, and the skillful are not necessarily wealthy. Those who are educated don't always lead successful lives. It's all decided by chance, by being in the right place at the right time. He starts this section saying good things happen to bad people and it won't always make sense. He ends this section, good things happen to bad people and it won't always make sense. There's an intense point of emphasis here. If you want to be wise, if you want to live a good and true and beautiful life, learn to tell it like it is. If you don't, what does it look like to become a fool? So we've, this is 10 weeks now in Ecclesiastes. We've, we've been talking about this for some time. What does a fool look like? Well, fools will often try to numb or escape from reality. Fools will try to diminish the pain through any number of ways, or they'll try to pretend like it's not even real. Fools will become overwhelmed with a sense that everything is bad and nothing matters, which is a pretty understandable conclusion. If, if it doesn't even matter how well-educated you are, you could still end up poor, or how good you are at your job. You may, if, you, if you go down that road long enough, you will probably at some point say, well, what's it even matter then? What's it all for then? The fools go down this road. Life is unfair and unpredictable. Therefore, fools think it's bad and nothing matters. If you go down that road, life is bad, nothing matters. Your soul will be filled with dread and anxiety. Why? Because life at least seems like it matters. Amen? It feels like it matters. John, standing next to his wife's casket, weeping, looks at her body and says, this mattered. The the young couple holding their new daughter looks at her and says, this seems like it matters. And so if if our thoughts are telling us that nothing matters, that life is meaningless and only bad, and yet experientially it seems to matter, that becomes irreconcilable. It fills the soul with inconsistency. And what does that look like? It looks like anxiety. It looks like dread, and it looks like despair. Some folks, and this is what where evangelicals typically fall, will instead try to focus only on what's good, what's happy, and what's hopeful. We only know how to say positive things. We only know how to put a positive spin on things. So we stand next to people weeping, and we look for some spiritual way to take the pain away. You all been there, right? You don't have to amen it, because they could be sitting next to you. You've shared the pain of your life, and someone says, but God is sovereign. Or they try to say a prayer to make it all go away. People who spiritualize our pain and try to gloss over it just to make it all look good all the time. This turns us into people who are detached from reality, who are unable to enter into the pain and tragedy of our lives. It makes our words hollow, both to our brothers and sisters in the church and to those outside of the church. 
If we don't know how to tell it like it is and have this pie-in-the-sky picture of reality, our witness will not be compelling because our words are not real. Just as the soul knows that life is not meaningless, the soul also knows life is not always pleasant and good either. So, at the beginning and the end of this section, he offers us reflections on life's unfairness and unpredictability. But in the middle, the preacher says something that shows there's another option between numbing and running. Numbing would be that, that picture of life is therefore meaningless. Running, that picture of it's only good all the time, let's only say happy things. What does he say instead? Eat your food with joy. Drink your wine with a happy heart, for God approves of this. I love this part. Wear fine clothes with a splash of cologne. Starts talking about life's pain, ends with life's pain, and in the middle, he says, eat your food with joy, drink your wine happy, and wear some nice cologne. Drink wine with a happy heart. Why? Why? Why do? Well, he says God approves this. Did you see that? God approves this. He's not just talking about what we do. That's eat and drink. He, he's talking about how we do it. The idea that he says, eat your food, drink your wine. Those were just normal, ordinary, everyday things. Don't over-spiritualize eating and the drinking of wine. That's just, that was their normal thing. You could think bread and table wine. That's what they had. That's what they did. He's saying, what? These things that you're eating, eat them gratefully. Glad hearts, joy, these are gifts. He's not talking about only wine or only bread. He's saying the normal things that you eat and that you drink, allow it to make you happy, to see the goodness of God in it, to produce deep gratitude. He's saying doing so pleases God. If you want to do something fun, I don't know if you'll think it's fun. I think it's fun. You can try it. Go home. In the back of your Bible, there's a concordance. I'll show you every time a word shows up, or you can get on the internet and look at every time the preacher in Ecclesiastes commands us to enjoy life and try to find similarities. Look at every instance in the book of Ecclesiastes that there is a command, not a suggestion, not a possibility, a command to go and enjoy life. And you will find a consistent theme. God expects us to enjoy life and the good things that he has made because that's what he has given to us. We might translate this verse, not just God approves this. You could say, this is what God intends. Why do we do these things? Because it's what God has intended for you. God intends us to enjoy these things. God made us to enjoy these things. So what, what does that mean? It means that we can focus on the good things in life that God has given to us and allow these things to point us up to God and who he is. Maybe it's, I was at the farmer's market, the New Albany farmer's market last week, and somebody was selling blackberries, but they were these, they're the biggest, most juiciest, gorgeous blackberries I've ever seen. And there was just this miracle of creation sitting right there. Maybe you allow something simple, and it's a blackberry. They're not difficult to come by. Uh, allow that to point you to who God is and, and what he's like. It could be a simple peanut butter sandwich. Maybe it's a fine glass of Pinot or a cold cup of apple juice. What are the normal things in your life that are good, 
that you can receive as a gift. Wise people, whole people, they can name the bad and focus on the good. They can name the bad and turn their eyes onto what's good and true and beautiful in life. They tell it like it is, and then they enjoy their favorite sandwich. This kind of rhythm, naming the bad and focusing on the good, it'll be like an oasis in the desert for you amidst your pain. Doing so offers us rest in the presence of God during times of pain. Seeing the good in our lives as evidence of God's kindness becomes evidence for us that God has not abandoned us. We don't pretend like the bad hasn't happened, but while we're being honest about the bad, what's wrong, what's painful, what feels unfair, we look for these places of rest in the desert. We, we eat our ordinary everyday food and allow it to make us happy. We allow it to point us to the good God who gives us good gifts because he delights in us and wants us to be happy. There's a part of that that feels not quite enough for me, though, to be honest. If I'm going to ask you guys to tell it like it is, I'll, I'll tell it like it is. It doesn't feel like enough to say there's a way to get a little break from your pain every so often or a distraction from the pain. Might there be even more? Not just a break from our pain, but an experience of God in the pain itself. Not just running from the pain and being reminded of who God is, but right there in the tragedy, in the loss, in the hurt, that God might be present and near there too. One day when he was walking along, Jesus came across a man who was born blind. Doesn't, can we just all agree that feels unfair? The kid do anything for this? Well, that's what the disciples are wondering. This feels so unfair. And so they ask Jesus, why was this man born blind? Was it because of his own sins or his parents' sins? Can, can you see a little bit of the heart of the disciples there? This is the question we would ask. Whose fault is this, Jesus? Who's to blame? Did he deserve it or is it his parents' fault? Whose fault is this? There has to be an explanation. If something bad happens, someone must deserve it, right? It must be someone's fault. You can see them grappling, trying to understand and make sense of what's going on. The first question they ask is who is to blame, but that is the wrong question. Look at how Jesus responds. This happened so the power of God could be seen in him. We must quickly carry out the tasks assigned to us by the one who sent us. He's not offering a statement or an uh, explanation. He responds with a statement of fact. Why did this happen? So that the power of God could be seen in him. Here's, if you guys want to Google something later, this is in all likelihood what's called a result clause. You can go read what that means. So it reads as saying, with the result that. This happened with the result that the power of God would be seen in him. This happened, that's the fact, with the result that the power of God could be seen in him. Jesus answers the question that the disciples should have asked. Not who's at fault here or who's to blame, but rather the better question is what is God up to here? He's infusing his disciples with a holy expectation. Even in this unfair unexplainable circumstance, God might be up to something here. 
No tragedy is beyond the scope of God's plan or power, which means even in the darkness, God is there. Darkness, tragedy, loss, suffering aren't things that happen apart from the presence of God. He is, in fact, there, present, even in the darkness. Watch what happens next, verse 6. Then he, that's Jesus, spit on the ground, made mud with the saliva, and spread mud over the blind man's eyes. Maybe part of you is just saying, yuck. (laughs) Why wouldn't Jesus just say, you're healed? It's not like the guy couldn't hear. Why would Jesus go through this drama of spitting on the dirt, making mud in his hands, and wiping the mud on the man's face? Why not fix it in an instant? If you know the story after this, with mud and spit on his face, he says, go wash yourself now in this special pool of water. Listen, Jesus is healing this man's suffering in a way that would only make sense to the man. He could not see Jesus. He couldn't see what he was up to. But then this man felt the hands of God on his face. No one else would experience it or understand it in the same way, but this man would. This is Jesus speaking in a language the man could understand and powerfully, profoundly saying, I am with you. I understand. I'm here. Jesus tells him to go wash off the mud and his sight is restored touched by God, washed at the command of God, and light breaks through. The story of the scriptures tells us that God's power will show up to your pain in a personal, particular way. Yes, pleasures remind us that God is near, and they can offer us rest from the pain and suffering in life. Pleasures remind us God wants us to be happy, and he's filled the earth with good things. But if we refuse to face the exceptions and the mysteries, the tragedies, we will miss the opportunity to experience the personal healing power of Christ in the midst of our pain and in the midst of our darkness. Right there, not as an afterthought, not someday, but right there, we may receive the the miraculous power of healing, physical healing, or we may receive the miraculous power of presence. That's the presence of Christ, but either way, we can find him there. If There's a short list of things I know beyond a shadow of a doubt that are true. One of them is that the presence of God is the source of peace in all of life's pain. It's not change of circumstance. It's not the miraculous healing. The thing that brings restoration and peace and contentment above all else is the real, concrete, tangible presence of God in our lives If God's presence is to be found in the pain, we are free to name the pain, to tell it like it is, to be honest about it, and ultimately to look for him in it, not on the other side of it, not as rescue from it, but right there in the midst of it. So weeping at a funeral can be a tremendous act of faith. We can be honest about what is difficult in our life or how we're struggling. That's evidence of faith. If God's presence is to be found in the pleasure, we enjoy it deeply, gratefully, and ultimately as a gift of his nearness. So celebrating a birth or laughing at a party is an act of faith. 
this is why the Christian church has clung so tightly to the cross of Christ for so long. It would have been insane to go back 2,000 years and say, you know what the most popular piece of jewelry is? It's a cross. You've probably heard this before, but that would be like us wearing electric chairs around our neck. It, it was an instrument of torture and of execution. And yet at the cross, we find a way that God can make room both for our pain and for our joy. We find how it is that Christians can hold the command together to weep with those who weep and to rejoice with those who rejoice. And at some point in your life, you'll find that both of those commands, you'll have opportunity to embody in the same day. You'll go from a funeral to a baby shower. We weep with those who weep. We rejoice with those who rejoice. And sometimes it can happen in the same day or even in the same moment. God shows us what he feels about life's exceptions, about our pain, and about the importance of weeping and rejoicing together at the cross. He holds our pain and our delight together at the, at the cross. He receives unfair accusations. He receives unfair torture and unfair execution. There at the cross, as if giving voice to all of our pain, Jesus cries out, why? Are not why questions some of the most painful heart-wrenching, life-altering questions. In all of our pain, we can look to the cross of Christ and know that God got involved, that God drew near, that he has felt what we feel, be it betrayal or brutality. God knows. He gives voice to our pain. And then three days later, he rose from the dead, bright as glorious day, to show that all of our darkness will eventually be washed away. As that man's eyes, the mud was washed away and the light of his love will shine through. The cross rightly makes us weep. Tears are an appropriate response when we behold the Son of God slain. It is our sin that nailed him there. It's right to weep when we see the Lamb of God suffocating in his body with agony in his soul. And yet... The cross of Christ is the greatest symbol of liberation and joy that the world has ever known because three days later he rose, setting us free from this life of death. Our story does not end at death. Our story does not end in pain. Our sin no longer confines us. We don't have to hide behind fake smiles or exaggerated despair. The cross shows us we can weep and rejoice. Be it darkness or light, God is there. And whether you come this morning in darkness or light, God is with us. The preacher of Ecclesiastes tells us to take our normal food and our normal drink, to receive it with gratitude as God intends, to be reminded that God is with us. And so in no way should it surprise us that Jesus puts this kind of a meal at the very heart of his people's gatherings. We're not surprised that Jesus takes normal food and normal drink, bread and wine, and uses it as the most tangible evidence that we have that God is with us. And so we remember the night that Jesus was betrayed. He took a normal loaf of bread, some, something just so incredibly simple and every day, and he makes it holy. He infuses us with divine expectation by thanking God for it, 
blessing it, breaking it, and saying to his friends, this is my body given for you. Eat this. Remember what I have done for you. In the same way, when the meal was over, he took a cup of wine. He said, this is the cup of the new covenant. This is your new relationship with God, and it's sealed with the shedding of my blood. Drink this as often as you eat in remembrance of me. Look at what he's doing. Every time you eat, especially if it's normal, ordinary, everyday food, he's saying, look at this and remember the nourishment that I have given you. Thank you for listening. Keep in touch with Sojourn New Albany on Facebook or download the free Sojourn Collective app for iPhone or Android where you can see our full library of sermon series audio and video, discussion questions, event calendar, ministries, and much more.